Words are important. We know that. They tell people who we are and how we live. The words that we use show our heart. They show what we think is important in this life. They tell what's foremost on our mind when we talk to people. They communicate, especially in this case, how Paul wants to persuade and lead the church. As we read the passage, I want you to notice how often Paul uses absolutes in his language. Not exaggeration, not quite hyperbole, but more like extreme words to get his point across. That the mission of the church is to have a comprehensive, unlimited influence on the whole world. The words he uses aren't simply for effect. He means them, which indicates that we too have to think about what he's saying and whether they're true for us as well. Whether we live out what Paul is advocating. So watch for the words all, one, and everyone. Because it's going to frame how we study the passage today. So let's read together 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. First of all then, I urge that supplications prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, There is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Lord, please give us your spirit and show us, Lord, what you have for us today through your living word. Amen. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Ephesus in a letter addressed to his son in the faith, Timothy. He couldn't address it to the church or to the leaders because the leaders were part of the problem that he was trying to correct. Timothy had stayed behind in Ephesus and Paul had moved on. Timothy was trying to restore order and lay a framework by which the believers could start multiplying. They weren't very healthy. This church is part of what is known as the pastoral epistles along with 2 Timothy and Titus. They are not books of doctrine as much as they are about practical wisdom given out so the church will grow strong. In chapter 1, Paul warns against counterfeit leaders and how God's mercy is available to all people, as he well knows. In chapter 2, Paul begins giving useful insight for how the church should express itself in the world. He wants them to remember that the mission of the church is for all people, in all places, all of the time. Until Jesus comes back, this is the mission of the church. It's for all people, in all places, for all time. So let's go back through the passage, paying special attention to where Paul would have us focus. In the opening words of the section where the practical wisdom begins, Paul uses the phrase, first of all, 
Literally, this means above all or here the most important thing. Paul begins his appeal to the church emphasizing prayer, not just generic prayer, but prayer of all kinds. His list isn't meant to be parsed out as much as it is to show how we talk to God and to show how many ways there are to talking about talking to God on behalf of others. We pray by asking, by thanking, by remembering, by interceding, by standing in for those who can't or don't pray. Whom should we pray for in life? Everyone. Paul says we should pray for everyone. As I was reading this passage and thinking about this passage and praying over this passage, it occurred to me that prayer is serious business of the church. It is a privilege and a responsibility for God's people to speak directly to him. Because that conversation has the power to bring eternal change. It isn't something that we should take lightly. It isn't something we should take for granted. Prayer is what makes the church unique in the world. It makes our service to the rest of the world different. We don't simply offer best wishes or nice thoughts for others. We go to the source who is above all and ask for God's power to be given in just the right way. Prayer should be the first thing we do when we want to make a difference or come to someone's aid. We know when we face difficult circumstances, we pray, but also when we can't get through to someone, when we don't know how to reach them, we ask God what to do. When we can't serve with our hands and our feet, we bow our heads. Before we go out and do anything for the Lord, we humbly ask him to go before us, to always be with us. Paul reminds us to pray for everyone, for those we love, for those we don't love, and all in between, for our friends and our enemies, for those we know and those we don't. If the church isn't praying, who is? If we who are God's people aren't praying for the things in this world, that means there are very few people out there who are. Paul goes on to remind us that everyone includes leaders of every stripe. He says we should pray for kings and all those in high positions. One of the things that I was thinking about this week and read about was the context in Ephesus. Remember that Ephesus is a Roman colony and it has to show deep allegiance to the empire. But this wasn't always the case. When Rome started, it was a republic governed by elected officials. But of course, Julius Caesar changed all that. And it became an imperial system with one emperor. And gradually, the Caesar took on divine status and was accepted as one of the gods of Rome. Rome allowed that and then decreed that there should be emperor worship. This, of course, didn't work well for the Jewish believers nor for the Christians who suffered a lot under this system. So at this point, Paul is bringing fresh perspective to the church. He's saying you don't pray to kings, you pray for kings. Because kings and rulers are just like us. They're dependent on God's grace and God's guidance for the things that they do. So we should pray for them every day. For people hearing this, this must have been a relief. Max Lucado conducted a poll in 2014. 
for an organization that we use a lot around here called Lifeway Ministries to ask what Christians were praying for in America. Participants were given a number of choices and they could respond with as many or as few depending on what matched their life. It shows in some ways what you might think. The top prayer requests are for family and friends, for our problems and the good things that have happened and also for our sin. The next one is for natural disasters. This makes sense to us as we share the earth. We want to pray for those who are struggling and facing hardship because of natural disasters. We want them to pray for us when it hits us. The next one, though, gives me cause. pause. Prayer regarding the greatness of God. It's the sixth one down. I want to pause just for a second and allow that to sink in. Today's lesson isn't actually about this. <laughs> But I had to say something about this because I think that all of us should consider switching God's greatness to the top of our list. Our prayer should always begin with the greatness and the majesty of the Lord, no matter what else we pray for in this life. Jesus taught us, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Great is your name. Majestic is your name. Let's stop and think about the Lord and who he is before we ask him for anything. Please take that home with you. The next one is just as discouraging to me. Prayer for our own prosperity. We're praying for our own financial well-being before we're praying for those who are lost. As you see, that is the next one down. Again, this is grievous. How can we ask God to prosper us more than to save the ones who are apart from him? We need to look at our prayer life. We need to repent if our prayers have been selfish and self-centered and only focused on us, except on the Lord and the things that he cares about. Back to the subject at hand. The survey indicates... 12% of us pray for government leaders. And I imagine that these prayers are mostly for those leaders who are in America. We talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago. And again, I would say that that's imperative. Christians make a difference with how they vote. They also make just as much of a difference, if not more, with how they pray. Regardless of your political leanings, and we have good diversity of opinions in here... We have to be lifting up those who choose to put themselves forward to lead. We have to. And we should be praying in this election cycle both for Mr. Trump and for Mrs. Clinton, as well as all of the national and state and local officials. But I was thinking as I was reading this, I was thinking how Paul like starts talking about kings first. Such an interesting thing in his context. And I was thinking how much... He could be emphasizing that our prayers should be global. Increasingly, we are a connected world. And we pray to the Lord who is over all of the nations. Of course, we always pray for and remember to pray for the countries where our missionaries are. 
We remember to pray for the countries where we have family ties or friend ties or we have visited or our children have been. We pray, of course, for the places where we know the church is doing good work or the places where we know they're being persecuted. But I was thinking, what other ways could we do this? What other ways could we pray for the nations? Well, when we hear the daily news, we could incorporate into our daily prayer time the countries and the leaders that we hear about. We could look them up with our kids and our grandkids. When we talk to someone during the day, I was had dinner last night with a guy from Canada. Well, tell me about Canada. How can I pray for Canada? We could absolutely do that and pray for different places. We could search the web for Christian sites where they systematically pray for nations as well as leaders. One of the best that I found is called Operation World. When you go there, it's mostly a, pray to, a place to pray for nations, and it's excellent. And they have a little card, and it will tell you all about the population and the religious um, persuasion of the place. And sometimes it will list leaders if it knows it. But they also link to a place called rulers.org where you can pray for all of the leaders of all of the countries currently and also the CIA. They link to the CIA. Oh yeah, I looked it up. And when you go to a place, it's really interesting because it will list not only the main leader, but all of like the prime ministers and all the secretaries and all the everything. It can be a lot. And I can hear some of you saying, how can I possibly add something like this in? Have you seen my life? Yes. Have you seen our world? The church needs to be praying for nations and for leaders, for kings and monarchs and prime ministers. They desperately need our prayers. If we skip praying for the world because it seems too much, who's going to do it? This is what the Lord asks of us. This is what Paul is reminding us this morning. Pray for our world. Not just the places where we have ties, but the places where the Lord brings to mind and the places where we can learn more about. Thankfully, we do this as a whole church and the church is worldwide, but we can bathe in in prayer. Let's do our part. The good it will do for those we pray for We'll never know until we get to heaven and we see them face to face. But it will open up our minds and our hearts and teach us and help us be more informed and give us a deeper heart for the things that the Lord cares about. The Lord cares about all people and citizens in all places. So let's be more than the 12%. Tertullian, one of the earliest church leaders and prolific Christian writers, offered this prayer for all rulers and governors in the first century. We pray for all the emperors that God may grant them long life, a secure government, a prosperous family, vigorous troops, a faithful senate, and obedient people, that the whole world may be in peace, and that God may grant both to Caesar and to every man and woman the accomplishment of their just desires. We pray for peace in this world. Let's pray on a more tangible, more micro level. 
Paul tells us we pray so that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and dignity. He urges us to pray because he knows that as Christians, we are in a foreign land no matter where we are. Because our allegiance first is to a heavenly realm, to the king of kings. That might put us at odds with those who rule. We pray for rulers so that we might live in peace with them. They lead, we pray. It's church and state working together for the good of all. Praying is the Lord's work so it makes us like him. Prayer is a spiritual discipline so that we might love God more and walk more closely with him. To live holy lives is to be motivated by the Lord in all we do. Also, when we pray for leaders and for countries, when we are praying people out in the world and people know that, that gives us some legitimacy that we are who we say we are in the eyes of those who lead. Shows that we're authentic, that we trust the Lord. Prayer for Paul, though, is more than peace. He says the work of the church is to engage our world with prayer and action so the gospel will spread through groups and nations. We pray for our own needs, but verse 4 reminds us what God's desire is, that everyone on earth be saved, that all come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's stop and think about that for a minute. God's desire is for everyone to be saved. So how, it is, how is it that we work for that? The church can't neglect its duty to see everyone saved so that we might perpetuate or save our own programs. We have to be prayerful people who bond with others in this city and around the world. We have to give money and time and pray daily that the Lord would show us how it is that he wants to use us to reach out to those who aren't yet saved. God's desire is that everyone would be saved. Sometimes we wonder, what is God's will? What does God want to do with us? A huge clue is right here that God's will is that everyone be saved. So when you think about your life and you think about the people who are in your life, what does that mean? What does God's desire have to do with your life and what you, you desire every day? How do you join him in that work? Verse 5 is probably an early church creedal statement. So let's read it together as the early church might have done. There is one God. There is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. Again, we see the universal scope of what God has done in Jesus. There is inclusive and exclusive language here. There is one God. He has no competition. He is perfect in every way. There is one who has paid the price for our sin. One who could do that. But it's available for all. God always takes the first step in reconciliation. Jesus comes to us and asks us to believe in him. Not because he's great. Not because we should. But because of what it is that he has done on our behalf. What it is that he has done in his body. We worship him and trust him with our prayers because he is the one that makes salvation possible. We trust him for the lives of those in our lives. 
Paul ends this passage with interesting language. He calls himself a herald and an apostle. He assures the reader that he is not lying, that he is not one of those false teachers that they are trying to overcome, that are wreaking havoc in their community. Paul has used strong words here, emphatic language, because he's trying to convey to the church that we need to be a praying community for all people everywhere in all times. We need to be a holy people. We need to put the focus of salvation in our lives for those who don't know God. Jesus' whole life underscores the importance of being reconciled to God. So does Paul's. So must ours. Here we see the universal, comprehensive, unlimited, and sweeping nature of the good news of Christ. So how will we pray, and how will we act to make it available to all? Let's pray.